Jesse, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Oh, you know, pretty good. Just a new dawn, new day in America. I've been thinking about in an alternate world what I would do if I were the president in the first hundred days. This idea terrifies me, but go ahead. Here's what I'm thinking. Number one priority, give every person in America a podcast. Yep. That'll take care of our financial crisis. Instead of giving everybody $2,000, just give them a podcast. So this will be like like Weimar era Germany hyperinflation, but with podcasts. <laughs> exactly like this. Number two, update the Star Spangled Banner. I think they need to add a little ethnic flair, maybe some bongo drums, a little more reflective of the American people. <laughs> That's your understanding of, of quote, ethnic flair is bongo drums. That That's not offensive. Yeah, like white people with dreadlocks on bongo drums. That's multiculturalism yeah. in America. Yeah. And number three, my number one priority as president, Katie Herzog, would be appointing a task force to work on the longevity of canines. Oh, Moose. You're worried about Moose. I'm worried about Moose. I mean, he's only a year old, but that's like a tenth of his life at this point. I need that dog to live to be at least until his 40s. <laughs> If I um if I was president, I would set out a task force to figure out like a final answer on how many genders there are. The the a final solution, if you will. <laughs> also, I would uh you know I would want to rank the marginalized groups. <laughs> Jew, Jews will be coming in near the top because we've had it rough. And then podcasters, <laughs> Jews and podcasters and everyone else. Jesse, what podcast are we recording right now? Blocked and reported. And you are. The bongo guy, Jesse Single. And I'm Katie Herzog. So I'm really excited about the show today. We're going to be talking about something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. Yes. But first, the the very conspicuous thing we are not talking about on the show is the new president, whose name is Kamala Harris. Yes, it's <laughs> President Kamala Harris. As far as, far as I'm concerned, yeah. she's my president. As far as um, the, 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 most of the media is concerned, she's also the president. So we've already recorded a patrons-only episode where we talk about, uh, you know, just our thoughts on this very historic transition, as well as the Biden administration's early executive order on sex and gender. It is juicy stuff. So Patreon is our subscription program where you get at least three extra episodes a month. Uh, so if you want to hear us talk about the inauguration and sex and gender, uh, patreon.com slash blockchain reported. But today we are going to be talking about false memories and the memory wars of the 1980s and 90s, which have come back to haunt us now. Um, the uh, occasion for this is an article that was recently published in New York Magazine by Katie Haney. It is called The Memory War. Jennifer Fried accused her father of sexual abuse. Her parents' attempt to discredit her created a defense for countless countless sex offenders. And so this is a story of a woman named Jennifer Fried. She is a psychology professor at the University of Oregon. And in the early 90s, she accused her father, Peter Fried, of sexually abusing her. And this was based on recovered memories. Um, her parents denied or her father denied it. Her mother had no memory of this either. And in response to this, they started a foundation called the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And this, uh, this organization had actually disbanded last year. The people involved were all in their 80s. But for decades, they worked with people who had been accused of abuse, usually sexual abuse, uh, based on repressed memories. Um, so what are repressed memories? Jesse, do you want to give a little primer on that? Yeah, the basic theory here is that you can have something very bad happen to you as a child and you basically store it away in your brain um, as something that could in theory be recalled perfectly. This was a big part of the, you know, satanic sex abuse panic, false memory craze. And then years and years later, you forget about it. 
basically for a long time. And then years and years later, usually with the help of a very skilled clinician, you can recover it and you can recover it in like stunning detail as though it is a video recording in your head. Um, this was the basis of many claims of, of truly horrific crimes. People went to jail only later did, I mean, all along there were skeptics, but the fact is no one who knows how memory works really thinks this is possible as it was described at the time. Right. And as you mentioned, you know, thousands of people were accused of crimes based on these repressed memories that would often emerge after people went to, went to therapists who would sort of coax these memories out of them. Um, it was a, it was a scandal and it's something that has, um, recently come back into the popular imagination. It's not something I, I even, I think knew about, even though I lived during this, this time period, um, until I heard a radio lab about it a couple years ago and it was just sort of shocking that this giant moral panic had, a, had taken over America. Um, there were tons of bestsellers about it. Um, lots of people, as we mentioned, lots of people were accused and some of these crimes were just impossible yeah. you know someone would come into your bedroom in the middle of the night steal you away take you to a cave and make you eat babies um and and police would investigate these crimes people would be would people actually went to jail there are lots of lawsuits over this so just a really really crazy time um, in american history and the whole concept of recovered memories has mostly been debunked and Katie Haney, the author of this piece, is a believer. And she's certainly not alone. There are lots of people, including people working in psychology and therapists who still believe that you can uh, repress something incredibly traumatic and then re remember it in perfect detail um, decades later, later, even though we know that that's not really how, how memory works. Yeah. Um, I should do like a quick full disclosure thing because I, I am still technically listed as a contributing writer at New York Magazine. I worked there for a few years. Um, you know, I, I just feel like it's – I'm not on staff and I'm not going to never criticize anything they run there. It's, it's slightly awkward, but I just, yeah, that'd be weird for me to not, um, ever criticize something that ran there. I have a huge amount of respect for the place and the editors and the writers. So yeah, just a full disclosure. Yeah. So our guest today is Ethan Waters. He's a freelance journalist and the author of the 1994 book, Making Monsters, False Memories, Psychotherapy, and Sexual Hysteria, which he wrote along with Richard Offshee. He's also the author most recently of Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche. Ethan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I'm really happy to be on with you guys. Thank you so much for the inclusion. Oh, yeah. This is uh, – we're super excited to talk to you. We've been wanting to do a show on this topic and um, and this, there's sort of lots of convergences here um, around the, the topic of false memories. Um, and so you seem like the perfect guest for us. So first of all, so you wrote this book, Making Monsters. I believe it came out in 94. You were the co-author with Richard Offshee. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's correct. Richard Offshay is a social psychologist at uh, a sociologist at U University of Berkeley. He specialized in uh, course confessions, but then got into the sort of the recovered memory uh, debate with me when I first wrote an article about uh, it in Mother Jones magazine. Okay, so first of all, tell us how you got into this. We were Jesse and I were just mere children at the time of the memory wars. Um, so how did you how did you end up uh, end up writing about this in the early nineties? You know, Peggy Ornstein uh, at Mother Jones didn't give me a job as a fact checker when I w had been filling in for one. And she felt so bad about that that she gave me an assignment. And the assignment was the hit, uh, satanic panic that was happening up in Olympia, Washington. It was the Paul Ingram case, which was my introduction to the whole idea of how memories can be distorted. It was my introduction to Richard Offshay and it led to my introduction to what was happening in psychotherapy at the time, which was the recovered memory fad. Oh, 
well, let's talk about that. So you mentioned the Paul Ingram case. This is a, a perfect example. Um, do you want to go into that a little bit and, uh, and tell us sort of more broadly what was happening in the 80s and 90s with a false memory syndrome? Yeah. So this was a, 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 a memory that came to – this was like sort of the, the, the Christian uh, side of the whole uh, recovered memory thing. There were sort of these multiple – you know, there's a feminist side, there's a Christian side. And this these were some – uh, memories that, uh, Paul Ingram's daughter came up with, you know, during one of these sort of high intensity prayer sessions at a Christian away camp. And she began to believe that she had been the victim of a satanic, uh, cult in her childhood. Um, the remarkable thing about the Ingram story, which is, makes it a really rare bird is that Paul Ingram, who was a sheriff's deputy, began to believe that he had been, uh, perpetrated these crimes. He began to sort of do these prayer sessions himself with this, with this, uh, his pastor up there in Olympia, Washington, and began to, for a time, believe that he was indeed part of a satanic cult. He began to implicate all these other people in the town, including all these other sheriff's officers. And then um, Richard Offshay, my co-author, went up there uh, initially to uh, help the prosecution talk, you know, to uh, to look into the sort of coerced confession aspect of it. But then realized once he began to interview Paul Ingram that something was really wrong here. That Paul Ingram was not indeed uh, remembering these things, but making these things, you know, up as he went along. And Richard Offshay actually led him into like making up an additional part of the story during one of his interviews with Paul Ingram. So Richard Offshay basically switched sides and began to work with the defense of Paul Ingram. Um, Paul Ingram ended up going to jail for 20 years for the accusations against his daughter. Um, and then, um, so that that case was it was. An interesting one, but it was kind of a rare bird for a number of reasons. That one, the you know the the, uh, the the person that was accused actually began to believe that they had done it, which was rare. But also, this didn't come out of psychotherapy. Most of the recovered memory uh, stuff actually came out of psychotherapy settings, and this one didn't. So this one came out of uh, out of church, not therapy. Yeah. So I mean, uh, this case and many others illustrate sort of two. I think key psychological principles we'll come back to again and again. One is that false memories can be implanted. And the other is that both in sort of interrogation settings and others, people, people are very malleable with regard to how they respond to sort of, I guess you could call it coercive authority, right? Like you, you do see people confessing to crimes they didn't commit in a way that isn't quite them believing they committed them, but just like, what psychologists would call demand effects. This is what this person wants of me. This is what I'm going to provide. So both of those are, are part of the satanic sex abuse panic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the demand effects of this, you know, the therapy setting or the interrogation setting or the, you know, the church group setting, you know, turns out have, you know, have a tremendous amount of influence into, you know, what we say in that moment, but also what we believe over time. Like these things, especially when you, get a huge amount of sort of social pressure and a repetition of those situations, you know, the, the therapy se session plus the groups, group setting, you know, plus your journaling, plus your reading, you know, all these, all the literature about it, like can all add up to have tremendous, uh, um, effect on your beliefs about your life over time. So this is one of the interesting things about this uh, this article that we're here to discuss, in part, The Memory War by Katie Haney in New York Magazine, is that she mentions the, 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 the main character in this piece, Jennifer Fry. She sort of mentions offhandedly that this woman in the early 90s started to have 
you know, re- recover memories from this abuse that she says that she underwent, you know, sexual abuse on the part of her father. And she sort of mentions offhandedly that, that Jennifer Fried was in therapy at the time, but she doesn't at all go into the type of therapy. Um, and your book, Making Monsters, really does go into the type of therapy. Um, and, the, you know, so tell us about this. What would happen in these sessions? Yes. So what happened in psychotherapy? This is the key question. Like, this is the absolute key question. So the article um, sort of talks about, oh, Pam or, or Jennifer had these memories and the dad had this denial and actually we'll never know what's going on here. Um, and you actually can know what's going on here if you look into what happened in therapy. And Jennifer has not been very forthcoming either about what the memories were or what the process she went through in therapy, although she claims that she didn't do hypnosis. Um, we're not we're not really clear what the process of therapy was, but for the general population of people that recovered memory therapy, we have a wealth of information about what happened in psychotherapy. And it comes from basically three sources. There are the court cases where the patient has sued the father and the the discovery that's come out of that. There are the court cases where the patient sued the therapist after recover, after realizing that their memories were false and the therapist had totally fucked up their lives and the third thing is the therapist's own books on the topic. And it, every therapist that was at the forefront of this fad in the 90s was given a book contract. Like there are 500 books where therapists are happily telling the reader exactly what they did, you know, how, how they use hypnosis, how they use guided visualization, how they use dream therapy, how they, how they suspected the memories came through body memories and symptoms they use sodium bre- brevitol sometimes. You know, there's, these therapists were so proud of the ways in which they elicited these memories um, that they wrote about them. You know, they, they talk about how the patient never, you know, you know, had to be convinced over months of talking about it that the memories were true. You know, you know, the confessions that these therapists make in their own books to me was the really damning part of the recovery memory movement, and it's something that the cut article just completely ignores there's no sense there's no there's there's no recognition of like that the therapists themselves talked about methods that are absolutely not the right way to recall memory like they they, they're absolutely coercive to memory well including they, they would treat the inability to remember an incident as evidence that it had occurred right everything as evidence that it had occurred yeah so it's the inability to remember it's you know it's vague feelings of discomfort. It's, uh, you know, th- th- there's a laundry list of, um, of symptomology that just goes on and on and on that, that, that supposedly the therapist can then intuit before the patient does that, you know, sexual abuse was probably in the past and it was probably repressed. And that's exactly what the patient was told. The therapists in their own books are happy to tell us that, that they informed the patient before the patient really realized themselves um, it is damning stuff. I mean, my, the hope with making monsters, my book on the topic and Richard Offshay's book was that we would just simply document what these therapists said. And it, it would be enough to just sort of lock them in the house and burn the house down, you know, you know like the, their own words, like literally, just, you know, using tons and tons of quotes about what they said they did in therapy would be enough to um, really damn the whole thing. Um, and the fact that, you know, you know, that an article would come out like the one we're talking about today and just simply ignore all that obvious evidence is um, 
it's just so infuriating. Can I, I just want to make sure we're clear about this. So the, the article doesn't say that Jennifer saw a recovered memory therapist per se. Are you, are we, um, do we think she did out of context or, or something you know or, or what, why, why that assumption? Yeah, there's so much, there's so little evidence about what happened with Jennifer that, um, you know, it's difficult for me to, to weigh in on that, you know, without that wealth of evidence, say the court case or the, or the book from the therapist that describes what they did. Um, all we know is like she was seeing a therapist. We do know that one of the memories, um, the, the memories seem to be from three to 10 years old, uh, you know, which is, or um, three to 13, maybe like a decade of memories. She thinks she's repressed. You know, so let's talk about like what we're actually talking about when we're talking about repressed memory. You know, we're not talking about something you didn't think about for a long time and then recalled it later and maybe reframed it and thought about it differently than you did as a child. That's that's normal memory. The thing that repressed memory therapists were selling was this idea that you had a bad experience, of an a situation of abuse, that memory could go away instantaneously, as in you could just it could happen in the morning and then you could go to school that day and you'd be fine. You wouldn't remember it that day. You wouldn't remember it for the next 20 years. And during which time it was actually inaccessible to you. You couldn't get at it. And then during, you know, therapy, when you're in your thirties, it would come back, but it would not only just come back the way a normal memory would, it would come back in this crystalline form where you could remember the smells and what people said and what, you know, perfect recall, basically like a videotape, right? Right. So that form of memory, that going away immediately, being inaccessible, and then coming back in perfect form, there's no there's no indication that 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 the mind has that capacity. There's you know, and if you think about it, being that we're not the first generation on this planet and not the first generation that's experienced you know horrible things, you would think we would have noticed that before that you know kids can you know have a horrible experience and then not remember it immediately and have no access to the memory, even if prompted about it or asked about it. Or um, So so it appears that Pam's memories fall into that kind of category, that, that she had abuse that happened for a decade. It was inaccessible to her for, you know, 20 years. And then it, then it came back, um, you know, during therapy that, that, you know, that definitely makes me wonder about her memories. I don't know enough about the process that she came to those memories by to, to sort of really indict the therapist here because we, we simply, she hasn't been that forthcoming and the therapist hasn't been that forthcoming. So. Well, where did this stuff arise from in the first place? Freud, right? Yeah. Freud was the original recovered memory therapist. Um, you know, before he sort of did that turn on his patients and claimed that all those, you know, supposed memories were fantasies, he originally sort of had to insist that they come up with those memories. So the, those patients didn't present them, present Freud. And he's very, again, very clear in his own writing about this. They didn't present Freud with memories of being abused that, that Freud later said were fantasies. Freud insisted that he thought the entire sort of etiology of hysteria was being abused at, at a very, very young age. He thought that that was the basis of hysteria, and he insisted his patients conform to those beliefs. And then later he said, "Oh well, that you know those can't all be true, so it must be fantasy." So he did this. He did basically two horrible mistakes: one, insisting that they come up with memories, and then, and then saying, "Oh, it was fantasies," and they're actually fantasizing about being abused by their parents, which is um, so. That's you know that's that's where it's got, it's got its sort of you know its status as a 
valid intellectual idea. Like without Freud, I don't think we have the recovered memory movement of the 90s. Yeah. And, I mean, you sent us these um, excellent long articles in the New York Review of Books by, I think, uh, Fred Cruz, right? Um, he he traces the genealogy of these ideas. And his basic argument is that all these sort of shortcomings you see with Freud with regard to falsifiability and just like irresponsible clinical practice, you have basically the same thing just in a slightly different packaging with with uh, recovered memory therapists who really were their own subgenre of therapists who would who would advertise i will help you recover these memories is is that a fair assessment do you think yeah but it it definitely had another um it had more to it than that it had had this cultural momentum i mean uh, judith herman was one of the big proponents on, on the sort of like the high intellectual stage of this movement. And her case, which I think really permeated the the whole thing, was that society was uncovering, had repressed the idea of child sexual abuse. And society's uncovering the repression was going in parallel with patients uncovering their repression. So it was all of us you know, facing the truth while these patients bravely faced the truth. So um and it was true that, that you know during that time we I think we were having a cultural moment about like the acknowledgement that child sexual abuse was you know prevalent and you know w- had been denied and um but then there so there was this sort of like really high end sort of idea that like repression was all of us and also the patients in therapy one of the things I've written about a lot is like the dangers that occur when social science gets tied in with a political movement. It, do you think it's it's safe to say that for certain people in certain circles, belief in recovered memory was sort of a signal that you were on the right side of issues pertaining to sort of uh, feminism and concern about child abuse? Oh, oh my God, yes. I mean, this was this was you know the cover of I think it was Ms. Magazine in nineteen. I think this was ninety three. The cover cover story was a baby an illustration of a baby with a snake wrapped around it, right? And the headline was "Satanic abuse exists, believe it." You know, and the the article was a, nothing manipulative about that. The article was a woman like talking about her satanic, having like uh, witnessed all these murders when she was abused as a child. I just think of, like I really wonder whether Ms. Magazine had a fact checking department. Because I, I can't imagine uh, a fact-checking department at a, at a magazine sort of overlooking the fact that you mentioned multiple murders in your story, and yet there's no evidence of those murders actually having happened. Well, this is one of the crazy things about this whole phenomenon is that you did have these, especially you know, the, the satanic aspect of it, this, these wild outlandish allegations that would implicate dozens or maybe hundreds of people, you know, people saying that they were forced to give, like, forced to give birth and then eat their own children and shit like that. Really crazy things that were then investigated by the police. But you also had these sort of more mundane cases. And I want you to tell us about the case of Jane Freeman, um, who's featured in the book, because I think it shows that this was not something that just impacted this sort of in, in this sort of crazy outlandish ways. This was also something that sort of besides the satanic aspect, you know, a normal person would go to therapy looking for help, complaining of something like depression or something like that, and then leave way more fucked up than they than they than they were when they entered entered into therapy. Right. I think we. I mean, that was the reason we included that story in the book because Jane's story is sort of the, the the low end. It's not the Paul Ingram case. It's not the Pauline case, and it, it, she didn't end up with satanic uh, ritual abuse memories. But she just, 
she was like any other therapy patient. She, you know, she was having some troubles with her boss at work and she was sort of bummed out about it. And she happened to work at a race rape crisis center. And uh, she went to therapy and then began to um, sort of immerse herself in that, you know, like the ideas that were really prevalent at the time. And they came not only from therapy, remember, these ideas about what the symptoms of a of repressed memories, they were on daily talk shows on TV. They were um, there was, you know, as I said, dozens of books written about them. There are magazine articles. They really were like in the culture at large. And you know, working at the rape crisis center, she equated herself with the with the, the symptomology. She began to talk about it with her therapist, and then suddenly, like um, you know, months into therapy, her therapist would do these sort of relaxation exercises with her, where she would sort of visualize things, you know, which is you know. There's no difference between that and sort of hypnotic induction, by the way. Like relaxation is the pathway towards hypnotic induction. It just depends on how susceptible the person is. But the therapist was clearly practicing these um, these methods with her. And then suddenly one day she has this flash memory of a, of a child's hand, you know, holding a penis. and Like you do. Like, yeah, like you do. And then begins to work on those things in therapy and like, you know, begins to believe it was the father, you know, it was the dad's penis and then they spent months, you know, as she describes uh, later in the court case, you know, you know, having to transcend denial. So she has to work with the therapist over, you know, accepting this as a real memory. Um, and then, you know, she at the same time she was joining, you know, um, reco- recovered memory groups where she you would go and you'd sit in a group setting and you'd recount your memories. Uh, it's another way of transcending denial. Um, all of all during which time her life was completely falling apart. Right. So one of the true problems, you know, problematic promises of recovered memory therapy is you'll get to these things, you'll uncover these memories, you'll relive them, and then you're, will be better. And that in basically no case that I've examined closely has that happened. In fact, you know, what usually happens is your life becomes, you know, significantly worse. So, um, yeah. So then her memories, uh, and, and I think because your life doesn't get significantly better, it often is the reason to go for more memories. Well, there must be more there. If that memory of holding the penis, you know, in the shower didn't, didn't work, you know, there must be, let's, let's go for more stuff. And her memories then kind of turn to her mother and she has these memories of, you know, you know, at one years old being orally copulated by her mom. And then uh, she has a memory of her dad raping a dog. And then she has a memory of a of her dad making her forcing taking her to a to a horse and making her put her arm up the horse's large intestine. Je- Jesse knows a little bit about that, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew that was going to go there. Oh. Sorry, Jesse. No, it's true. <laughs> this is one of the things I was frustrated. The article in the cut left out. The article made it sound like. The only real evidence we have for implanting false memories comes from these these lab studies. Whether or not she covered those lab stories correctly, there's this whole other type of therapy that we know almost has as its its raison debt. Like the 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 purpose is to produce these memories. Like that that's the effect of it, right? Right. That's the effect of it. And the, and then I th- what you really have to do is look at those methods and look at that look at how the memory was covered uncovered and you. And again, the therapist books are just a, um, a, you know, wellspring of like information about how these, the way these memories came back. It wasn't like, oh, now I'm remembering my, you know, I was in the shower with my father. It's like, 
okay, let's relax you. And now you're coming home from school and you're opening the door and your dad's there. Now what happens next? Right. It's guiding them. You're leading them through a story a thing, you know, that they're imagining in real time. They don't, they don't know what's going to happen next in the story. But whatever comes up is assumed to be a memory. And and, and that's where like demand effects cause come in because like there's this line of research from I think the 50s where um, like subjects and experiments will very much notice what psychologists are looking for in an experimental setting. And you could you – could, uh, easily adapt that finding to a clinical setting. Like if a, if a therapist clearly wants you, keeps nudging you towards saying um, your parents abused you, we know that people are very malleable in such contexts, correct? Uh, absolutely. I imagine that the demand effects is something that's going to be in your upcoming book, right? That uh, the way in which psychological experiments can be Funny enough, I, I had to cut a section on sort of the history of psychology that mentioned them. So it's actually not, but it, that research is fascinating. Yeah, I, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, the demand effects in that situation and, and the really hard thing to wrap your mind around and the reason it was worth writing a whole book about this is that those demand effects exist in culture at large. They kind of exist in this inchoate way, um, you know, and you, you just have to name all the sources you can and then try to imagine the influence on a on a single mind. So, you know, the TV shows, the the magazines, the the therapy settings, the group settings, the thing, you know, the things your neighbor is saying about it, the the the, the shared certainties we have at given moments in history are so powerful that they can influence things like behavior and memory. And they're easier to see in the rearview mirror. We can look back at hysteria, for instance, and see like the demand characteristics of of the doctors that expected their patients to exhibit these very florid symptoms of, you know, shaking and fainting and um, gross grotesque motor movements and so forth. Like um, those all came from the demand characteristics, not just of the clinical setting, but of the culture at large, this shared assumptions that that the mind works this way or that way. That seems like uh, you could probably say the same thing about like speaking in tongues. Um, you know, these things that are removed from from psychology, but also result in sort of similar behaviors in some ways. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I you know, I was so interested in this in that aspect of it that I had to go on and write another book about it, which is called Crazy Like Us, The Globalization of the American Psyche. And it talks about how expressions of mental illness, even things like schizophrenia, but definitely things like um, post-traumatic stress disorder, the symptomology changes dramatically over time and across cultures. So the expectations of how you react to a trauma is dramatically different in Sri Lanka than it is in America, and it was dramatically different in the American Civil War as it is now today. That's really interesting. Uh, Does this make you – like the the more I read about about this moment in American history with satanic panic and these memory wars and the role of the institution of psychology um, that psychologists played in this, the more I become skeptical of the institution of of psychology at all. Um, has that has that been your experience, or do you uh, do you? Yeah, still- it, it, it seems like every generation has a set of certainties. Um, that are terrifying. So you go back to, you know, hysteria, you can go back to lobotomies, go back to electroshock, go back to the recovered memory movement. My nervousness right now is, um, you know, it has to do with gender identity and. Thank you. I was so scared to ask you about that. Can we, can we actually leave a little room here for an ad break and then come back and jump into that? Yep. Yep. 
Katie, Valentine's Day is coming up. And like everyone else, when I hear Valentine's Day, I think toilet hygiene. And when I think relationship, I think the relationship between our listeners' butts and bidets. That's because the future of toileting has arrived. Okay, it's technically been around for centuries, but hideously expensive, costing thousands, if not billions, of dollars. But now, the brand new Hello Tushy 3.0 Modern Bidet Attachment is here to level the playing field. It's stylish, eco-friendly, easy to install, and affordable. Hello Tushy 3.0 doesn't just cleanse your butt with a precise stream of fresh water, it cleans itself before and after it's used with the Smart Spray Automatic Self-Cleaning Nozzle. Katie, you and I are so in sync from our decades of podcasting together that I can literally hear your thoughts right this moment. Wait a minute. Don't bidets require electricity or additional plumbing? No, idiot. Of course not. The Hello Tushy bidet attaches to your existing toilet and cuts toilet paper use by 80%. So the Hello Tushy bidet pays for itself in just a few months. Because with Hello Tushy, you don't wipe at all. Just poop, spray, dry, and go. And sanitation is simple. The Schmutz Shield offers easy cleaning and the knobs are naturally antimicrobial. Plus, every Hello Tushy bidet attachment comes with a 60-day risk-free guarantee and a 12-month warranty. Already got a tush on your pot? Upgrade to the new 3.0 model. If you're new to the revolution, join millions of happy Hello Tushy customers right now and have a clean butt with every flush. For the rump you love to hump, this Valentine's Day, give the gift of Hello Tushy. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod to get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a special offer for our listeners. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off. hellotushy.com slash barpod. Okay, I, I was I was hesitant to ask you that, but um, when I whenever I read about the recovered memory panic, the on the side of therapists, the the parallels are so overwhelming. They punch you in the face over and over and over. You have you have therapists who think that they can like see deep into some little person's soul and help them find their true self. You have this pressure not to ever question kids who can get confused about stuff. So so you think this could really be going on in a potentially harmful way. Yeah, and I have to be really careful about this one for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one of which is I, you know, I haven't studied it, it uh, as much as, I, as I've studied the recovered memory. I'm immersing myself in it now for a, a number of reasons, including some personal ones. Um, so I have to be pretty careful about it. But I, you know, I can tell you I've been in situations um, now in that community of of parents and experts who are struggling with this and. Um, there is, you know, the one parallel that I, I really worry about is sort of the tenor of the debate. In at the height of the recovered memory movement, you know, you could go to these conferences, and absolute belief in this certainty of this, the accuracy of memories and the the, the validity of the therapy was required to speak or to be there or to open your mouth, like absolutely required. And you know, within the um, the the debate over um, transgender youth and the use of medications and surgeries there is I worry that there's the, that 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 tenor is there that 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 sense of like you know we have certain agreement and we have to really tamp down or attack people that might question um, what's going on so you know I guess the most general answer to your question is yeah like the, the profession seems to have sort of a generational, set of certainties that it pursues without a lot of understanding that, you know, they with, without a lot of looking back at the last generation and say, Oh, that whole lobotomy thing, we really should have like rethought, we should rethink what happened to get us there. 
and then look or look back at the recovered memory movement and say like, what does this teach us about like the nature of therapy and the nature of talk therapy and what we do? Like we should really learn from this before we go on to our next certainty. And some of the people are the are involved are the same. There's a Jesse. What's the woman's name in 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 California? Bar Diane Aronson. Right. She wrote papers about multiple personality disorder um, in the 80s and 90s, and now she's one of the leading gender clinicians in the U.S. The the other, I mean, parallels I noticed that I found disturbing were a um, the main problem is like these these recovered memory clinicians, ironically didn't know much about memory about like I like like most memory experts could tell you a lot of the claims they made were inaccurate similarly I think a lot of gender clinicians don't actually have much of a grasp on developmental psychology but there's also this like uh, in the recovered memory movement there was this tragic tearing apart of families and you sometimes see the same thing where it's like if the parents have any questions about a kid's often new and sudden gender claims, they're sort of the enemy. And that, that worries me a little bit because the cl- the good clinicians I've talked to all seem to agree that, except in the most sort of abusive outlying cases, parents tend to know their kids and have some, you know, useful information to impart. Right. Yeah, that is a terrifying um, potential parallel as well. Like the, 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 the pit therapist with, you know, a newfound certainty that's, you know, you know, five five years in the making is now you know suddenly stepping in in between a child and a, and a very concerned parent. Yeah, um, that's ter- that's terrifying. Yeah, to see that happen potentially again. Ethan, I'm curious about what the reception of the book was when it was published, and also your reporting on Mother Jones and just in general. This was something that was so widely accepted um, in large swaths of American culture that surely questioning it made you something of a pariah you know i i think about like would i write that book now like and there one one no fucking way and two like no one would have given me the contract to write that book now like two two guys you know questioning memories of mostly women's abuse stories like that just wouldn't have happened and you know potentially would have been absolutely um destroyed on the internet thankfully you know the internet didn't really exist back then so you know i avoided that pain but yeah, you know, accused of being, you know, part of a satanic cult myself and, you know, probably, you know, you know, like on the abuser side, like this article in the cut, you know, suggested like, you know, probably was, you know, the suggestion was probably angling to help out, you know, accused pedophiles, uh, all that, all that stuff. But, um, interestingly, like the, there was a moment like in the mid nineties, um, uh, Elizabeth Loftus book came out, our book came out and, the fever kind of broke a little bit. Like there was a, and there was a number of like enormous lawsuits where patients like turned around and sued their therapists for, you know, $10 million, you know, and that's when back when $10 million meant something. It was, um, there was a really, there was a real turning of a tide. And that, that was the moment when you didn't get attacked. You just kind of got ignored. Like a lot of therapists were like, Oh yeah, we don't do that. We don't know those guys. And we, and we move on to the next, you know, iteration of, uh, the, the next thing, no looking back, you know, that should be the, the motto of psychotherapist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Elizabeth Loftus. So she's a, a giant in this field. Um, I've interviewed her before and I found her absolutely fascinating. Um, Katie Haney does not seem to, <laughs> does not seem to have a very, uh, good impression of her. So she, uh, first of all, Ethan, will you kind of tell us about the, about the mall study? Um, and then we can talk about, about, um, about the, the piece in the cut about how it, how it framed it. 
Right. So yeah, Elizabeth Loftus is a is a preeminent memory researcher. Um, she's you know done you know major studies on the topic. One one of her early studies, very early studies, was um, a small one that she had her students help her out with, which had to do with trying to convince a sibling or a family member that they have a memory of being lost in the mall. And it turns out even in a short time period, that's remarkably easy to do. You know, she got a number of her students were managed to convince the sibling that they were lost in the mall. In that cut article, that is, that study is put up against, you know, the, the Pam's memory, like the, the memories of all the, you know, the, the survivors. And there's a suggestion that that's all we got on the side of questioning the recovered memory movement is this, is this one, Lost in the mall study, like that's it. It's the mall study has been over, 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 uh, emphasized and like how, you know, and, and, and this, this author is going to, you know, bravely point out that it's, you know, it's actually not as, it's not parallel with what happened in therapy. Like, of course, it's not ha- parallel to what happened in therapy. It's not even close, you know, the, the I- amount of influence used to get those memories of being lost in the mall was, uh, Drop in the ocean compared to like the influence used in therapy to get a, ther- a patient to uncover memories, uh, repressed memories of, of, of abuse. So this, there was this just ridiculous parallel and a real, um, you know, libeling of Elizabeth Loftus, this, this idea that she did this in order so she could, you know, represent Harvey Weinstein and, and, uh, and Michael Jackson, you know, in abuse cases like that's, Elizabeth Loftus is a fantastic researcher who has endured a great deal and has been very courageous in doing her work and working with the False Memory Syndrome Foundation and Pam Fried, Jennifer Fried's mom. Um, and she, she really, you know, this, this, this portrayal of her was reprehensible and lazy and just dumb. Well, it, she also, so, Part of the part of the piece, she interviews James Cohn, who was one of Loftus's graduate students, or maybe an undergraduate at the time. Um, and so it turns out that this Lost in the Mall study that initially had been done as like a five point extra credit assignment, and according to Haney's telling, Cohen has sort of disavowed Loftus, and he thinks that that the study was flawed and that this shouldn't be used to um, to extrapolate anything about memory. Well, that it turns out that's not true. I mean, so she quotes him at the end of the piece, the kicker, she he, she quotes him as saying, I got five points, Cohen says, five points in decades of grief. So I got in touch with James Cohn, and he's deeply troubled by this piece. And he says that Katie Haney mischaracterized him. Um, and he told me basically that when he said that he got decades of grief for this, the decades of grief comes from people accusing him of being being an apologist for abusers. So the exact opposite of what Katie Haney uh, insinuates in her piece. Oh, I was going to say that it's like, you know, and she suggests like he doesn't testify about, you know, this thing because like he's not qualified to testify about this thing. That's not his area of research. Like he's, yeah, he was, he, uh, he absolutely felt like he was completely used by that reporter. Yeah. I think like the more you, the longer you're in journalism, the more you realize how much you can mislead just by leaving stuff out. Like you, you can write a very misleading story where there's not much that's technically wrong. And the problem here is like for the story to just leave out all those other examples and, and to barely mention the satanic sex abuse panic itself and the, the decades of lives ruined is just, 
it's frustrating. And, and to the average cut reader who I think does probably skew a little bit younger and, and like most people doesn't know that much about the science of memory. I think they're going to come away with a potentially skewed perspective on this stuff. Yeah. I think what gets left out here is the true uh, crime. And Katie, earlier in this discussion, it seemed like you were like worried that that satanic cult stories would be like, you know, too kind of too mean to bring up. Like it's like it's we don't want to compare all abuse memories to the satanic cult stuff. But I think I, I think it really is a decent starting point where you have like, you know, I think it was when they when they surveyed surveyed psychotherapists in 1993, um, fully 12 percent of them had a satanic cult case memory, you know, recovered memory case in their practice at the time. So that was, this was, you really do have to account for the propagation of this satanic cult conspiracy theory. Like if that's not true, if there's not satanic cults murdering children and abusing children and, and hiding the evidence on a sort of national scale, then the recovery movement has a lot of explaining to do. And I think you begin, I think it's fair to begin there and say, okay, this stuff can't possibly be true because it's never been found. And then work back to the more sort of, uh, benign, not benign memories, the, the more common commonplace memories and say, was the process of getting these more commonplace memories similar to the ones that you got those satanic cult memories? And if so, we, we might have a problem here with all all of these memories that were claimed to be recovered in therapy. You know. <laughs> These days, are there sort of strong and specific protocols in place for for how clinicians can avoid generating false memories? Uh, I not that I know of. Um, I think I think most respectable people in the profession have sort of moved away from this because I think it just generally I think not not out of some high minded way or you know they certainly didn't take the time to sort of learn what happened so they didn't repeat the mistake. It's still going on. They're still part of the dissociative disorder sort of international committee that is devoted to um, – they've kind of renamed it from satanic uh, ritual abuse memories to something more benign like organized abuse memories. Like they've given it a new name, but it's the same people and they're still sharing a lot of the same stories. So it's still going on. It's still out there. The internet has given it new life. Um, you know, God knows, you know, QAnon is – you know, sort of giving these, these, these are the same beliefs, you know, so that are sort of coming out of the right wing now that uh, these beliefs in baby murdering, eating uh, cabals of people that control everything. That's one of the things that's so fascinating about this, um, that it has, it does seem to have come back in recent years. I'm, I'm looking at a, at a piece that I wrote in, in 2019 for The Stranger. Um, this was in response to a study and perspective on, perspectives on psychological science. And it found, a review found that 76% of clinical psychologists today believe that, believe in traumatic dissociation, which is just sort of a, a repackaging of repression memories you know this is like this is like this is a current day um and then with the QAnon stuff this also you know the parallels are just totally eerie absolutely and you know i you know living in san francisco i'm surrounded mostly by left-wing friends you know and i'm i'm of the left i think and you know there's all this sort of tutting about like oh those those ridiculous you know right-wingers and their crazy conspiracy theory about satanists and I do take some pleasure in pointing out to them that like, you know, that Ms. Magazine cover story in 93 and the fact that the left, you know, left wing 
therapists, you know, carried that narrative for a decade in culture. Yeah, Gloria Steinem was a huge proponent of this. Absolutely. You know, in her magazine and in her speeches and her own books. And she was also one of the people like Judith Thurman who said like, who had this grand idea that this was culture, American culture, Western culture, uncovering the repression of abuse as these individuals did it. So it was it was that grand idea that we're all on the same team uncovering what we were afraid to uh, uh, admit or to look at before. I I will say like it's frustrating that it feels like there's been no real progress in understanding how like accounting for the fact that moral outrage affects our understanding of science. Like uh, I think Alice Drager and Emily Offie have both written some good stuff about how on like the subject of sexual assault – a lot of what passes as as mainstream lefty scientific quote unquote scientific knowledge about even why men rape or the nature of like traumatic memories just doesn't really pass scientific muster. And I, I'm very much a Dragarian in the sense that like if we don't have good science to understand this stuff, we can't really improve society. I feel like it's just this stuff just recycles itself every generation or so, as you're saying. Right, I think so. And I, I, and just the fact that. So many people walked away from this controversy with sort of their, you know, practices and their reputations relatively unscathed, except for the ones that got their, you know, pants suit off them. But, but most of the profession sort of like turned away from it. And we had, so we had no accounting for it. We had no, you know, Gloria Steinman never had to account for that article on Ms. Magazine or the positions in her book, you know, Judith Herman and, and Ellen Bass and, uh, you know, the Courage to Heal authors. That book is still on the shelves. There's never a sense of like, you know, sort of public outrage is what happened here? Like, let's really look at it. So, and I think because that doesn't happen, we don't, you know, we, we do it again. Like if we don't have that understanding of what happened, like how are we not going to, how are we going to learn from it and how are we not going to fall prey to it again? Well, how did this end the first time around? It's a good, it's a good question. Um, and you, you need to look at it from a number of levels. And I think from the patient level first, um, because a lot of these patients have sort of come come out of it, come out of the other side, and particularly the like the the ones that believed in the satanic cult conspiracies, or the ones that believed that um, they were multiple personality disorders. Um, really outrageous belief systems require a lot of social support to maintain. So. You know, like the idea that the whole culture was talking about this, the idea they were going to th- into therapy sessions once a week, they had their their survivor group on the side, and then they were, you know, um, you know, journaling and all that stuff. Like that takes a lot of energy. So oftentimes, what happened was this is so banal, but oftentimes what happened is insurance companies sort of ran out of you know paying for it. You ran out your whatever insurance you had was like, you were at the end of it. You couldn't stay on that dissociative disorder unit ward anymore. So you're done. So you're, you're suddenly like, you don't have the money to pay, pay a therapist. And it, it was really with things like that, like if with the, the social support went away, a belief system that elaborate and that outrageously counterfactual just sort of kind of collapses on its own. Like it just, it just sort of collapses uh, away. And I, and with the QAnon stuff, you know, I'm not sure with the internet now and the way in which the internet is employed to maintain these belief systems. I'm not sure the same thing can be hoped for because I imagine it will just you, there's always some place on the internet you can engage in that fever dream of the Q conspiracy and I think there always will be. Um so I think we're in a different place now than we were before, but um basically 
the first time around, it kind of collapsed under its own sort of weight of like just being of it's it's it just the story just kind of collapsed in pieces and and then and then you lost those social supports for those individuals and then it collapsed more and then it was pretty much gone for a time until uh, until now until we, we whitewash it in articles like uh, Katie Heaney's which is um, just amazing that you could look at a movement like that that happened over a decade and come out of it you know criticizing one study uh, and thinking you had said something interesting about it um, yeah, I, it probably won't surprise you to learn that Katie Haney is also the author of pieces in the cut called What It's Like to Have Multiple Personalities and Almost No One is Falsely Accused of Rape. Um, so it's very clear where her sympathies lie. Um, and it's reflected in her reporting. Ethan, will you, will you just stop with the damn sugarcoating and tell us what you really think about this article? I, you know, the, the, the slandering of, of Pam Fry to, you know, the, this, this, uh, you know, the idea that, and even in that podcast they did about it, this idea that, you know, she created the False Memory Syndrome Foundation in order to replace her family and that, you know, that everyone that came to the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, you know, was presumed to be innocent. Um, those are just, just damnable lies, you know, like, the, you know, that, you know, Pam Fried is um, a very uh, thoughtful woman who um, threw herself into a controversy not for her own benefit, but for the benefit of others, really, um, in all likelihood, destroying any chance of having a relationship with her her daughter in the future, and she paid a dear price for it. Um, and she she basically created a repository so people could begin to understand what was happening here, and that was an immense of immense social value, and it had nothing to do with becoming a place where you know pedophiles could find a good defense like it had nothing to do with that and that's what Katie Haney's article implies and that is just despicable well it seems um from what i'm hearing it seems like there is quite a uh, a backlash to this piece within the field um and a number of people have reached out to the editors for if not corrections at least further reporting um it will be interesting to see if the, uh how the how new york magazine responds to this as of yet there is one sort of semi-correction at the bottom of the article. It says this article has been updated to include more context about the 2017 memory mega analysis. And that is it. Um, I know those are not the only problems with the article. So it will be very interesting to see if they actually uh, take the, right. take the steps of correcting their fuck ups. What do you, what do you think? Do you think they'll do it? Do you think what's, what's your, you want to, you want to, what you want to weigh in? Jesse, this is a question for you. Uh, as we're going to mention in the intro, I, I still have like a light affiliation with New York Magazine, so I need to, I need to be a little bit careful. I think I can safely criticize it, but I, um, you know, I, I think based on my experiences at New York Magazine, there's a lot of really good journalists and editors there, and I expect they'll take these criticisms seriously. Well, we'll see. Was that, dip was that diplomatic enough? Yeah, that was good. You can, you can keep your light affiliation. Okay, Ethan, anything else that you wanted to say about this or, uh, memories in general or anything else that's on your mind? Just want to say that uh, I'm really fan of the show. I love what you guys do. Unfortunately, it took and you invited me on to become a Patreon member, so I'm, I'm not sure about your business model in terms of how many people you're going to have to have on your show to make it work. <laughs> but um, but really, uh, really enjoy talking to you guys. I think you guys are a force for good. And any um, I just I'm so so flattered to be to be on with you. 
Hey, Philly's, Philly's mutual. I think your work on this stuff was, was really, really important. So uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right. We will put a link to uh, your book in the show notes. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, guys. Really appreciate it. That was a great interview, Katie. Thank you um, for also doing most of the legwork on uh, just researching that. It's such a fascinating subject. Yeah, this was super fascinating. And also thank you to Katie Haney for writing this article so we could talk about it. Yeah. Uh, as always, you can uh, reach us at blockchainreported.com. Podcast, I think yep, that's it. Our reported podcast at gmail.com. We have a subreddit. Uh, as mentioned in the intro, we have a Patreon where you, if you want, you can listen to our take on the inauguration and the Biden sex gender EO. What am I missing, Katie? We have a merch store. It is still online. Who knows how long it will be online for, but we're holding it hostage. Yeah. <laughs> Because not enough merch was being sold. <laughs> Although, as we told our patrons, we there's been a nice little uptick since we first held a gun to the merch store's head. So barpod.org, if you do not want to watch this merch store die, you better buy some fucking shirts. Get a fucking tote bag. It'll stop donating to, donating to NPR, donate to Blockdown Reported, and then buy a tote bag. Uh, anything else, Katie Herzog? Written for you on iTunes. Apple Podcasts. Whatever. This has been Blockdown Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember... Your dad did not make you eat your baby sister, probably. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you have a sudden recollection of Jesse Single showing up in your bedroom covered in chocolate pudding, it's real. <laughs>